the presenting sponsor of Top Ducks is Netflix, now presenting the documentary series Harry and Meghan. From award-winning director Liz Garbus, the Boston Globe calls Harry and Meghan a fascinating look into a profoundly rarefied way of life. Emmy eligible for outstanding documentary or nonfiction series. Hi, I'm Ken Jacobson, and welcome to Top Docs. Today, I'm talking to Chai Vassarelli and Jimmy Chin, the directors of Wildlife. Wildlife had its world premiere at the 2022 Telluride Film Festival, and then went on to screen at this year's South by Southwest Festival, where it won the Documentary Spotlight Audience Award. The film also won the Audience Award at the Sun Valley Film Festival. Chai and Jimmy are best known for Free Solo, their incredible film about the climber Alex Honnold that won the 2019 Academy Award for Best Feature Documentary. Other recent films of note are Meru, which they made back in 2015, another great climbing film, and more recently, the BAFTA and DGA-nominated documentary The Rescue, which we talked about on Top Docs back in December 2021. Those three films right there, Meru, Free Solo, and The Rescue, unbelievable work. They also made Return to Space, which hit the top 10 on Netflix's most watch list. In short, Chai and Jimmy are an incredible team. The other thing to note about Jimmy is he's a National Geographic photographer and professional climber and skier, which he does at a world-class level. It was great to have Chai and Jimmy back on the podcast to talk about their new film, Wildlife, which in some ways covers similar ground because it deals with world-class climbers and outdoors people. But this film is also a departure. It focuses on Chris Tompkins, who was married to Doug Tompkins. Both were high-level entrepreneurs and business executives who later turned to conservation efforts, and they did so in an extraordinary way. Doug started the process. He bought millions of acres of land, primarily in Chile. And then together, they embarked on this incredibly ambitious plan, really never tried before, to turn that land into national parks in Chile and Argentina. Doug dies tragically in a kayaking accident, and that leaves Chris, who's deeply grieving, to figure out what to do next. And that's really the focus of the film. Wildlife is currently streaming on Disney Plus and Hulu. As usual, if you like this interview, please follow us and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell a friend. Also, please follow us on Instagram at TopDocsPod and on Twitter also at TopDocsPod. And now my conversation with Chai Vassarelli and Jimmy Chin, the directors of Wildlife. Chai Vassarelli and Jimmy Chin, welcome back to Top Docs. Hello. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, thank you. It's great to have you back to discuss wildlife. And I think that not unique to you guys, but this is a film that definitely has a personal connection to it. And so I thought we would just jump in and start by my asking, Jimmy, how did you first meet this group of people? Because even though the film focuses on Douglas Tompkins and Christine Tompkins, there's a core group of folks here. And so, Jimmy, can you tell us just how you first met this group and how it led to making of this film? Yeah, I knew of 
Rick Ridgway and Yvonne Chouinard and Doug Tompkins long before I met them because they were pioneers in the climbing world. Rick had been climbing all around the world and most significantly made the first American Ascent of K2 without supplemental oxygen. Um, he was on the cover of National Geographic. Yvonne Chouinard has first ascents or routes that he's climbed on uh, all over the world. You can go to a range, mountain range, in various places around the world and their iconic climbs that Yvonne had done. I met Rick in 2002 and he invited me on my first National Geographic expedition across the Changtang Plateau in northwestern Tibet. And it was on that trip that he taught me how to film. And we had a very incredible adventure on that trip. And after that trip, he introduced me to Yvonne. So I've known Rick and Yvonne for 20 years. And it was a few years later that Rick and Yvonne introduced me to Chris and Doug. And I met them down in Renue in Chile. And I was just struck by these kind of intrepid characters that had left their business lives behind, very successful business lives. Chris, the CEO of Patagonia, where she built that company, and Doug, who started the North Face and later Esprit, and how they had left that life and moved to this remote valley in Chile. And I first learned about what they were trying to do at that point. I think it was 2008. Chai, when did you first meet Christine? I met Chris in 2015, shortly after our son was born and Doug had passed. It was within one day of each other. And she was going through a really hard moment. But even that said, I was struck by her graciousness and her quiet generosity. And when you see Chris, she's so unassuming, you would never imagine that she was like the first CEO of Patagonia and built it to like what it became. You wouldn't imagine like that there is this fierce fire that burns there. And it was really special to get to know her. I'd already met Rick Ridgway and his late wife, Jennifer and Yvonne. And these were people that were very dear and close to Jimmy who welcomed me into the circle. So when you went down to Chile after Doug died tragically, you brought your camera with you. And I'm wondering, was there already a film underway at that point? Or what were your thoughts about just how you were going to be present for what was a grieving process for Chris and all those in Doug's close circle, while at the same time being aware that film might be an important tool for helping tell Doug and Chris's story? I've always been inspired by lives that Rick and Yvonne and certainly Chris and Doug had lived. They certainly defined a lifestyle and really an ethos of living. And I knew that there was something there in terms of the stories that they had and being brought into that kind of family of friends is something that I'm incredibly grateful for. But when I first went down in 2000, I think 16, it was originally because Chris had asked Rick Ridgway and I to climb Cerro Cristina with her, the mountain that's that Doug had named after her. And I was on the first ascent of that mountain with Rick and Yvonne and Doug back in 2008. 
And I thought it was a great opportunity to reconnect with Chris. And when Chris makes that sort of request to go up there, I was obviously happy to oblige. But it was right during that moment that President Bachelet had planned to come down and speak to Chris. And I think it was the first kind of meeting between Chris and President Bachelet about possibly moving forward with the parks. It wasn't the signing, but it was clearly an important meeting. And since I had the time set aside, I said, hey, Chris, is someone documenting this moment? And she said, no, it's like the last thing in her mind. And so I said, look, I've taken the time on, I'll just come down there with a camera with another friend of mine, actually Mikey Schaefer, the high angle DP from Free Solo. And it was the two of us. And we just went down and I thought we should just cover this for posterity. And while down there, I started to understand that these national parks, there was a potential for this thing to actually happen. When I came back, I talked to Chai and we knew that there was this incredible love story. There was this potential for something to happen. And Chris is an amazing character or I guess participant, potential participant in a film. So we started to think about it even back then. And we were still filming Free Solo, but I think we both knew that there was something there. And we were both inspired by the stories of this kind of group of friends. And they were doing important work. So we hadn't really decided on making a film, but we knew that we should go into this and possibly start thinking about making a film. And I think Chai can talk about this too, but this is what often happens. We back our way into these films. It sounds like this is a case where Jimmy had to pitch this idea to you, Chai. Obviously, you're a filmmaking team and all for one, one for all. But I find this really interesting that in this case, it seems like Jimmy kind of had to make the case for this film a little bit. And I don't know if that's exactly how it went down, but I'm just curious from your perspective, Chai, how did you evaluate, because you knew these people too, but how did you evaluate like, yeah, I think this is a film and we should move ahead with it? I mean, at face value, yes, it was quite probably a very important story to tell, but this is about my husband's mentors. So it's kind of like damned if you do and damned if you don't. And that was my feeling. It just seems tricky and close. And this is a really private group of people and they're of a different generation and they were used to being the bosses. They owned their own companies. And it was also a complicated film because I've never made a film about someone I had not met and I never met Doug. It also was like all the challenges of the film were like, it spans such a long period of time. It starts when they're like teenagers, when Chris is a teenager. And it's all these ups and downs. And it, it was a very complicated story. So I was hesitant, but I, I don't know if you know this about us, but I think maybe you do, is that I dread making a movie. It's even like worse than backing our way in. It's just like total dread because you understand the commitment that will be required once you commit. And I understand the sort of like full like hurricane that we are as filmmakers and that we won't stop until we get it done, until it's where it should be and what, until we can honor its subject. And so for me, it was really when I saw Chris pick herself up the worst had happened. She had lost the love of her life that she'd found later in life and was faced with this 
audacious vision that they had shared that was on the brink of financial ruin and had to be finished. And to see her kind of regenerate was really moving to me. And that was like a theme throughout their story that I found moving from Doug at the height of his Esprit career, deciding that he could do more and really should pay attention to the planet and leaving everything behind and moving to Chile. Or Chris, similarly, after 20 years, 25 years in Patagonia, she's the CEO. It's like one of the fastest growing companies. It's doing great work. And these are all people, she, like this is her family. But she too, like as she says in the film, was like, if I didn't go then and try something new, I would die here in this position. So just the courage to change your life and to brave that unknown and seeing her do it yet again after Doug died, that's what moved me. And that's the story that I found incredibly important and inspiring. I'd love to just take a step back for folks who maybe haven't seen the film yet and aren't familiar with Doug and Christine's work. What was the audacious vision for Chile and then later also Argentina? I think they didn't have a totally clear vision at the beginning. Doug was coming down to Chile after he saw his portion of Esprit. I think he was looking to do something meaningful in terms of protecting some land. And it was over the course of a few years that they started to understand literally the landscape in Chile, that there was a lot of absentee owners of this land and that dollar for dollar, they could buy a lot more land than anywhere else for preservation and to protect it. I think they also started to understand that national parks had the highest level of protection in Chile and Argentina. And it was at that point that they, over time, decided that they wanted to build these national parks. That, I think, was an evolution from when they first arrived there. And it started to grow. They started to see what the potential was. By the end here, they spent 25 years building these national parks, and they were able to really work with the government after all that time to leverage for every acre that they had bought and protected they were able to get nine acres from the federal government. So they were really smart about it. They were able to scale this idea in a way that not a lot of people have ever done before. Today, they've ended up protecting over 15 million acres. And just to give you a sense of scale, I mean, Yellowstone National Park is the biggest national park in the United States. We spent a lot of time in Jackson, Wyoming, and we live right on the border of that Yellowstone ecosystem. It's massive. And that's 2 million acres. And Doug and Chris have protected over 15 million acres. It's pretty audacious. Ironically, as I sit here today, I'm in Hot Springs National Park, which is the smallest national park <laughs> in the national park system. But one of the things that it teaches me is that when you do gain the status of a national park, Things are preserved that maybe wouldn't be, certainly not in the same way, had they not been given that status. So that really does seem to me to be a critical component here, even in, not in the United States, but in other countries, in this case, Chile and Argentina, that gaining that status is the gold standard. It is. And furthermore, Chile was based on an extractive economy, right? So 
in some ways, they picked one of the hardest places to do this. And because of that, I think since they've done it, a lot of people are paying attention to what they've done. I think in the film, Elon says it's changed the entire outlook of these national parks within Chile. They're so proud of these kind of gems of their country. And that isn't just Chile. I think all of South America is paying attention to what they did. I think countries around the world are paying attention to the model. They were literally breaking trail to show even in a country where that was based on an extractive economy that they were able to pull this off. That's a big deal. You do show in the film that it wasn't easy. There were opposition forces in Chile to this idea, be it the military or right wing or even just local people who were suspicious of these quote unquote foreigners, even though they were living in Chile, coming in and buying up this land and saying they were going to give it back to the government. But as you've indicated, there's not really a precedent for this. So it's only natural that these suspicions would be out there and also this level of opposition. When you began to talk to Chris Moore and follow this process through to the point where she did sign that historic agreement with the president of Chile. What did she perceive to be the biggest obstacles to getting this done? There are several layers to that question. So I think one was that the carrying costs of these parks until they were actually donated was enormous. They did all of this with about $150 million total, but their carrying costs were about $6 million a year. And Tompkins Conservation just didn't have that money to sustain it indefinitely. Additionally, and it's also financial, like they were bleeding money from the farms. And I think for Chris, these were the places like Renue where she spent the 25 happiest years of her life. And it was a very, very personal decision to sell them immediately because to protect Tompkins conservation. And then I think Part of it, too, was she really felt that the only way to get it done was faster, bigger, donate all the parks at once. And that was a very big undertaking. So I think she had so much to lose. But this is like the CEO of Patagonia then coming into play where she saw what had to be done. So she did it. There's a scene in the film where she's saying goodbye to all the people who helped build the parks because they had to hand them over to the government. And so some people would keep their jobs, other people wouldn't. And she didn't know when she would see them again. It was a very personal, difficult plan for her and process for her. And as you say, part of what evolved in their approach was over time, focusing more on this concept of rewilding. Can you talk about what this means and why they pivoted in this direction with their conservation projects? I think this relates to what Chai was talking about too. They really approached this project with a long view. I think when you build a company over the course of 10, 20 years, you look at the scope of a project differently. So it wasn't just about national parks. They started looking even further down the road and they realized, as Chris says in the film, landscapes without wildlife is just scenery. And really the work that they found to be important was rewilding, which is to reintroduce all of the wildlife that had previously lived in those landscapes so that you had a fully functioning ecosystem. I think as we know now, everything is interconnected. 
And when you take out one animal from an ecosystem, it has a cascading effect on everything. The jaguars predating on the Wanakos provides food, not just for the jaguars, but also for the scavengers. And it all is interrelated. So they had a very holistic view of what they wanted to do. And they also understood that when you looked at these parks and rewilding and you got fully functioning ecosystems, that when you want to talk about climate change, that what it comes down to is if you protect habitat for wildlife and you create a fully functioning ecosystem, that is one of the greatest things that you can do to combat climate change. They're smart. They look at things from a lot of different angles and they understand the impacts of all these different variables. It's also interesting to me that they bring to these projects the mindset of entrepreneurs. These are people who are incredibly successful in the outdoor fashion industry. They built these companies up from nothing, basically, and created incredible successes out of both of them. And I couldn't help but feel that they were bringing that kind of entrepreneurial lens to this work. And it got me thinking that maybe with these giant system-wide problems related to the survival of our planet, that we would be served to think more about how kind of an entrepreneurial perspective in partnership with governments and other organizations and people is something that could help find solutions. I yeah. think you're completely right. And I think that it's just so interesting that like over and over again, they saw a problem and they figured out how to fix it. And if that kind of spirit can be brought into like larger collaborations over climate change and ways to address climate change, I think that's a natural extension of the work that Tompkins Conservation is doing. So at the heart of this, there is this multi-layered love story, right? There's the love story between Doug and Chris, the love story between Doug and Chris for Chile and for the land. There's the love story, I think, among friends. There are these multiple loving relationships in the film. And I wanted to ask about the love story between Chris and Doug in this context, which is your last film, The Rescue, which we talked to you about, I think, in December of 2021, which is a terrific film, is obviously a rescue story at the heart of it. But I began to think that wildlife, in a way, is also a rescue story. It's the story of two people who rescued each other from other lives that they were living and had come to reevaluate. That's a beautiful thought. Thank you. You know what I think it really speaks to? It just speaks to like this commitment that Jimmy and I have in terms of our work where we want to leave the world a little bit better after the experience of watching one of our films. And I think that one of the things we found incredibly moving about the British divers and Australian divers in the rescue was this idea that they had everything to lose and they were willing to risk it to save 13 strangers. It's a story that talks about the best of us, the best things humans can do, the most selfless. And I think that's what you also see in the story of wildlife and the love that is shared between Chris and Doug. Ultimately, they gave everything to the planet and 
ultimately, like they were willing to, she says that line, which I just love, like the shoulder to the wheel to get it done. And so it's this idea of it seems impossible. It's such a big undertaking. However, with the intention, the work, the dedication and the vision, like they were able to achieve something that was impossible. And that's like such a uniquely human thing that also reminds us of the good things as opposed to the commercialism and selfishness and all these other parts of our lives now. And it just reminds you that you can do something. It's not too big. I think a lot of our motivation for making this film also came from the fear we see in our kids who are really young and who feel overwhelmed by climate change. This was a story we wanted to tell for them that provided some hope. Yeah, I think it's a hopeful story about the environment, which I think is really important right now. But it's also a hopeful story about human nature and the best versions of humanity being selfless and really trying to contribute to something where they had 25 years of work that they had committed to this, which is a lot to lose. And they committed and figured it out. There's a point in the film where you're on this climb with Chris and Yvonne and Rick and Chris in this shot, I think she's alone and she looks up to the sky and she says, why did we never climb our mountain together? Calling out to the clouds or the gods and really speaking to Doug about the mountain that he named for her on an earlier climb. My question is, the two of you, Jimmy and Chai, are also an extremely busy couple making films at the highest level, seemingly on the go all the time. When you hear Christine ask that question, does it give you any pause about whether the two of you are taking time to climb whatever mountains may be out there for you two? It's a really beautiful question. I think that something that Jimmy and I share in very different ways is that we cherish certain life experiences and our children are a very good way of keeping it grounded and focused. Jimmy has spent his life in the mountains and in the great outdoors, and it is incredibly important to him to protect that space in our family's life. And I would say similarly to me, like in a different way, like I really love being outside, but I also love, I don't know, different types of food, like traveling and Jimmy and I share that too. So I think it's a good point. And I think it also really resonates with this idea of stop and take stock and enjoy and celebrate the small moments. For me, at least, like the kids really help with that because you have to be so present. So yes, we could have a bunch more date nights and that's hopefully in our future. But right now we're in this mode of like family moments and family experiences and sharing these exciting things in our lives and experiencing them as a family. Our kids introduced Wildlife's premiere at MoMA three weeks ago. And they traveled with us to Copenhagen to present the film at CPH Docs because it's too precious to give up that time with them. Jimmy, did you have any final thoughts about making this film about your mentors? I think making a film about your mentors is a big undertaking because it comes with a particular <laughs> type of pressure. But I think we feel it in every film. We're responsible for telling the story of the participants in the film. And that's a lot of responsibility. I'm grateful that we've had the opportunity to spend all this time with them over these last several years. 
And I hope we do the story justice. I think you definitely did do the story justice. And it's incredibly inspiring to see and learn about what Chris has been able to do to carry on this legacy that she and Doug started. I want to just thank you for the legacy that the two of you are building with the incredible body of work that you've put together so far. Thank you so much and congratulations on this film. Thank you so much. This was a really lovely conversation. Yes, thank you, Ken. 